Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Diane Downs shot her three children and herself in the arm, then drove them all to the hospital where her seven-year-old daughter died. She claimed she was the victim of a carjacking, but that was only her first story. This is Monsters. Diane brought her three children into the hospital on May 19, 1983, in Springfield, Oregon. She claimed that a bushy-haired stranger tried to steal her car and that he shot her and her three children in the process. The hospital staff and authorities could tell that something was not quite right about her story. Elizabeth Diane Fredrickson was born on August 7, 1955, in Phoenix, Arizona. Her mother, Willadine, gave birth to her when she was only 17 years old. Her father, Wes, was 25. She was the oldest of four. She had two brothers and a sister. Diane said that her mother didn't show her any attention and pretty much lived her life to please Wes. Willa Dean was from a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church where the idea of a wife was one that served her husband. She spent her time cleaning the house and doting on Wes, and spending time with Diane was of no importance. Wes was the disciplinarian. He set the rules and expected them to be followed, or else there were harsh consequences. Diane said that if she came home without homework, her father would make her read the dictionary. After Willa Dean began working a night shift at the post office, Diane said that Wes began molesting her. She would have been about 12 years old at the time. She had been a young girl who was starved for attention, but now she was getting it in a way that nobody wanted. It was in 1968 that Wes was almost caught sexually abusing Diane. He would sometimes drive out to a secluded area and molest his daughter. On this particular day, he was still driving when he commanded Diane to remove her shirt and bra. She started screaming and tried to open the car door, but Wes managed to pull it closed. A state trooper had been driving behind the Fredericksons, and he pulled them over. When he asked Diane, who was hurrying to button her shirt, if she was in trouble, she lied. The trooper took Wes aside and said something that Diane couldn't hear, but from that point on, Diane was never molested by her father again. Diane met Steve Downs when she was 15 years old at Valley Moon High School. They were both in the same grade. When the couple began dating, Diane's parents didn't like him and urged her to date other boys. 
That only made Diane like Steve even more. Diane once said, quote, He was everything my parents didn't like. If their life was so wrong, then what they hated should be better. So I chose Steve, end quote. After graduation, Steve joined the Navy and left the area. In an effort to get away from her home life, Diane went to the Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in California. While there, she said she was popular for the first time. She went to a Valentine's dance with one boy who worked up the nerve to kiss her. After that, the two had sex at the church altar, and when the school found out, she was expelled for promiscuous behavior. She had only been at school for one year before she returned to her hometown in Arizona. Eventually, Steve was discharged from the service, and he also returned to Phoenix. Diane and Steve were married on November 13, 1973. When Diane didn't return home to her parents' house after a date with Steve, Wes showed up to Steve's house with a shotgun and demanded the young man either marry Diane or bring her back home. Steve opted for marriage. Diane said that Steve changed as soon as they were married. He was less attentive. He showed her less affection. Those were the main reasons that Diane had married Steve in the first place. She had always been looking for the attention she didn't get as a child, and she thought she had found that with Steve. Now that his attention was waning, she needed to find a new way to get the love and attention she so craved. Their first child, Christy, was born on October 7, 1974. Diane was the subject of the first episode of Inside Edition in 1989, where she told the program that Steve didn't really want kids. Quote, I got pregnant when I wasn't allowed to. I'm not going to say he forbade me from getting pregnant, but I didn't consult him. I wanted to have children, so I got pregnant without asking permission, end quote. It turned out that Steve had wanted to wait years before starting a family, but Diane didn't, so she threw away her birth control pills. Steve had gotten noticed by a modeling agency who booked him a gig in a Gillette Razor commercial. Steve started getting excited at the thought of having a family now that he believed he was going to start a lucrative modeling career. Tragedy struck, though, when a car Steve was working on exploded into flames while he was underneath it. The producers of the Gillette commercial weren't willing to wait for his burns to heal, so they recast the part. Steve's modeling career ended as fast as it had begun. Shortly after, Diane decided she would add much-needed stability to the family by joining the Air Force. She packed her bags and left for basic training, but only three weeks later she was discharged. Steve claimed to have called some major and explained that she had a baby at home who needed her, but it's reported that she suffered from terrible blisters and actually got a medical discharge. When her plans to use the military to gain control of her life failed, Diane did the only thing that she knew she could have 100% control over. She got pregnant. Cheryl was born on January 10, 1976. Steve, not wanting any more children, offered to get a vasectomy after Cheryl was born. He made the mistake of not following up on the procedure and getting his sperm count checked afterwards. A tip for men. If you get a vasectomy, you need to go back about a month or so later to have your sperm count checked in order to ensure the procedure was successful. If not, you still may be producing sperm and may still get your significant other pregnant. Steve just assumed the procedure was successful and Diane ended up pregnant again. At first, Steve assumed that Diane was having an affair, but when he went back to the doctor to check his sperm count, it was revealed that the vasectomy didn't work. It's much less common for a vasectomy to not work nowadays, but still, always go for the follow-up. Diane opted to have an abortion. 
Both Steve and Diane, living in Mesa, Arizona, took jobs at the Palm Harbor Mobile Home Company, a mobile home manufacturer. While there, Diane started looking for what she referred to as a suitable donor. She had previously asked Steve to get his vasectomy reversed so she could get pregnant again, but he refused. She wasn't the type of woman who considered that a final answer. Diane chose a 19-year-old named Russ Phillips and had an affair with the young man. It didn't take long for her to become pregnant with his baby. During her pregnancy, she experienced some bleeding and took a less active job to try to save her pregnancy. She began working in the office of the local United States Post Office. She liked the job enough, and it was less strenuous than her job at the mobile home company. She gave birth to her third child, Danny, on December 26, 1979. Steve obviously knew that the child was not his, and that's when he decided to call it quits. They were divorced in 1981. Russ loved his son, but Diane only really let him see the boy when she needed a babysitter. To Diane, he was simply a sperm donor. After the divorce, Diane lied her way into becoming a surrogate for a couple who couldn't have a baby of their own. She had lied about the health of her own pregnancies, her marijuana use, and that she had had an abortion, claiming it was a miscarriage. Some psychologists wrote that they thought she would have difficulty giving up the baby after birth, but the agency chose her to be a surrogate anyway. While she carried the baby, she had multiple affairs with married men she worked with at the Postal Service. A neighbor said that the children were not well taken care of during this time. Cheryl would be left to wait on the front porch when she got home from morning kindergarten until her mother arrived home from work hours later. The neighbor eventually started taking the young girl in and feeding her. On May 7, 1982, just before midnight, Diane gave birth to a baby girl and didn't protest as the doctor handed her over to a different couple. As much as Diane said later that she had become attached to the baby while she was inside her, her main goal was to be pregnant and to use the $10,000 payment as a means of securing her own independence. When Diane returned to work after having her surrogate baby, her attention became focused on all of the men she worked with at the post office. It wasn't until she started having a relationship with Robert Knickerbocker that she took interest in actually being with a man long term. Robert was a married man and a co-worker of Diane's. They began having a relationship, and Robert repeatedly told Diane that he would leave his wife for her, but always went back on his word. In 1983, Diane took a job for the Postal Service in Eugene, Oregon to be closer to her parents who had previously moved to the area. Robert claimed that he would leave his wife and move with her, but he backed out yet again. Diane wrote him letters during this time. Robert claimed that she was borderline stalking him and even suggested that she would kill his wife if that meant they could be together. About six months after Diane moved to Oregon, Robert told her that he was not going to leave his wife. He said that he did not want children and did not want to raise her three children. In her mind, her children were the obstacle that was keeping her from being with the man she loved. This is when she came up with a plan to change that. On May 19, 1983, Diane Downs shot her three kids in her car and then shot herself in the arm. She drove everyone to the hospital and told an amazing story. Diane claimed that she and her children had visited a friend in a nearby town and they were driving home on a rural highway. She had taken a detour to do some sightseeing, despite it being about 9.30 at night, and it was on one of those roads that a bushy-haired stranger stepped out from the side of the road and flagged her down. 
She said she stopped the car and got out to see what he wanted. Then he told her, quote, I want your car, end quote. When she expressed a disbelief over the request, he pulled out a gun and started firing it into the back of the car. She then said that she pretended to throw her keys to distract the man and pushed him out of the way. She jumped back into the car and sped away. She must have gotten shot in the arm when she struggled with the attacker. Seven-year-old Cheryl was pronounced dead at the hospital, but the other two children, eight-year-old Christy and three-year-old Danny, were still clinging to life. When police arrived at the hospital, they interviewed Diane and noted that she was completely flat emotionally and told them the story of the bushy-haired man completely calmly. After she was treated for her gunshot wound, a doctor checked on her and recalled her saying, quote, that really ruined my new car, end quote. Authorities put out a report to be on the lookout for an armed man matching the description that Diane had given them, but they were immediately skeptical of her story. Why would somebody be out sightseeing in the dark? Why would a mother with three kids in her car pull over for a stranger? Why did the man directly shoot the kids, but she only got shot in the arm? Why, after all of her kids were shot, would she take the time to carefully wrap up her own arm in a towel before driving them to the hospital, but she didn't wrap up any of the kids' wounds? Authorities also found it odd that the first call she made from the hospital was to Robert Knickerbocker, not her ex-husband, the father of two of her children, not Russ, the father of Danny, not to her parents, who she had moved to Oregon to be closer to. She called Robert. We can only assume to make sure that he knew her children were dead. Or so she thought. Diane claimed to have never owned a gun, but an interview with Steve proved otherwise. He said she owned a .22 caliber pistol, the same caliber from the shooting. When interviewed, Robert confirmed that he also knew she had a .22 caliber pistol. They searched the crime scene and found spent casings, but never found the murder weapon. They did find unfired .22 caliber rounds in Diane's home that had extractor marks that matched the spent casings they found at the scene. Other forensic evidence that didn't match her story was the fact that there was blood spatter that was from Cheryl on the outside of the car even though Diane claimed that all three kids were shot inside the car. Diane would later claim in an interview that they were blood drops from when they took Cheryl out of the car when she got to the hospital, but they weren't drops. Blood drops would be all from above and be in one line as they pulled her out of the car. What was on the outside of the car is small drops that had come from the side. You can see that some of the blood drops are on the side of the metal trim below the passenger door. It is clearly high-velocity spatter. Police believe that Diane got out of the car and retrieved the gun from the trunk, and during that time, Cheryl got out as well and Diane shot her first. There was also no gunpowder residue found outside on the driver's side of the car, which would have been there if she and the children were shot the way she described. A witness also told investigators that they came up behind Diane as they were driving down the road and she was driving to the hospital very slowly. She told the police that she raced to the hospital, but the witness said she couldn't have been going more than five to seven miles per hour. We'll be right back. Her stories about the shooter changed as well. She initially told police that it was a single stranger, but in another version of events, she claimed that it was two men who called her by her name. Then, she claimed that she knew who shot her kids. The detective who interviewed her asked, quote, You know him by name? End quote. And she responded, Yes. 
Hospital staff started noting that, when Christy was still recovering in the hospital, still unable to speak, her vitals would change every time Diane came in the room. Her heart would race and her blood pressure would rise. Without a word, Christy would panic every time she saw her own mother. In an effort to clarify the details of the incident, they filmed Diane reenacting what happened on the night of May 19, 1983. During the reenactment, Diane laughed and joked with the host while she reenacted the events that killed one of her children and critically injured the other two. Then Diane made it a point to go on every news program she possibly could especially after the media found out that she was the main suspect. If I had shot my own children, would I not have done a good job of it? Why would I have taken my kids to the hospital? Wouldn't I have made sure they were dead and then cried crocodile tears? That's insane to think that I would do such a thing and then bring the the witnesses in against myself. That's crazy. Yeah, she's clearly innocent because she would have done a better job at killing her kids if she was guilty. That's a poor choice of arguments, but then she says this. Everybody says you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. The scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. What the fuck are you talking about, Diane? You weren't lucky because your arm hurts and you'll have a scar, but your kids are lucky when one of them died and the other two will suffer permanent effects from the gunshots? On February 28, 1984, Diane was arrested and charged with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder. She was pregnant at the time of her arrest, and the prosecution claimed she did it on purpose to garner sympathy from the jury. Diane explained this pregnancy in an interview. I got pregnant because I miss Christy and I miss Danny and I miss Cheryl so much. I'm never going to see Cheryl on earth again. And I just, you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect that they give you. And they give me love. They give me satisfaction. They give me stability. They give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And, and that's gone. They took it from me. But children are so easy to conceive. Yeah, she's got a point there. Babies are so easy to conceive. When one dies, just have another. All of the evidence was laid out to the jury, but the most damning evidence came from her surviving daughter. Christy had recovered enough to be able to take the stand and describe what actually happened on May 19, 1983. When the prosecutor asked her who shot her that day, Christy simply answered, My mom. She described how her mom pulled the car over, retrieved something from the trunk, pointed into the car, and began shooting them. Authorities believe she then shot herself in the arm to make her story believable. Cheryl died from her wounds. Christy suffered a stroke that left her with long-term speech problems. Danny was paralyzed from the waist down and is now confined to a wheelchair. The court took a recess in order for Downs to give birth to her last child who was then put up for adoption. When the court reconvened, Diane Downs was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to life in prison, plus 50 years. She would have to serve 25 years before she would be eligible for parole. She would be 54 at that time. And then she escaped. Three years after her sentence began, Diane scaled a barbed wire fence and ran off. 
She was found 11 days later at the home of another inmate's husband, not even a half mile from the prison. She claimed that she escaped in order to find the bushy-haired stranger and get her revenge on him, but nobody actually believed her. She was given an additional five years for the escape attempt, and then she was transferred to a maximum security prison in New Jersey. Authorities thought that she would be less likely to try to escape if she didn't know anybody in the area. Years later, she would eventually be transferred to the Valley State Prison for Women in California. Diane continued to maintain her innocence, even going on Oprah to try to discredit true crime author Anne Rule. Uh, such books as The Stranger Beside Me, The Ted Bundy Story, and her current bestseller is Small Sacrifices, which is, in fact, your story, the Diane Down story. Have you read that book? Uh, yes, I have. And what do you I think? I take issue. I take issue with much of it. Okay, okay. What do you take issue with? Well, she considers it a true story, and she's quoted me all through the book and tells the reader how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking at various times, all through the book, yet she's never interviewed me. How does she do that? How does she justify that being a true story? Okay, Anne, how do you justify that? Well, Diane, I'm sure you remember my coming to jail and interviewing you. June 26th. 20 minutes. 20 minutes, Anne. And I also sat in the courtroom while you testified for four days and told your entire life uh, from your childhood abuse uh, through your marriage, through your uh, multiple affairs, how you felt about it. And at one point you said to the prosecutor, Mr. Hughie, would you like me to explain how I met all my lovers and how our affairs were carried out? And, and he said, no, that wouldn't be necessary. And he and did, and then rule. you went ahead and told it anyway, Diane, which for a writer, um, you, you helped me a lot in your testimony. You say that. <laughs> Diane Downs was eligible for parole in 2008 and in 2010. She was denied parole due to the fact that she still maintains her innocence and expresses no remorse even though her daughter testified against her and her story is constantly changing. This is from her parole hearing in 2010. Do you still maintain that you did not commit these murders? Or the, the murder and the other crimes you were convicted of? Absolutely. I didn't commit them, and I still maintain my innocence. The night you took your children to the hospital in Springfield, will you describe the events of that evening? Yes. My kids and I were sitting at home watching TV. We were watching Helen Keller, the Helen Keller story. I received a phone call from someone who said that he wanted me to come pick up some photographs for my boyfriend, not of my boyfriend, but for my boyfriend, Rick. Rick is a guy that I'd been dating for about six weeks, and he claimed to be an FBI agent. Whether or not he was, I don't know. I certainly never called him at work or showed up or made him prove it or show a badge. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't to me it was just all it was just dating but i received a phone call about 9:15 from someone who said i needed to come pick some photographs up for rick this part of the story is new and i believe it has something to do with her claim now that law enforcement was involved in setting her up to take the fall for the shooting of her children she received a phone call about picking up some photos from her fbi agent boyfriend in this version of events, she took all of her kids with her and then stopped by her friend's house to drop something off and to see her horse. The story continues in its original form that 
while driving on a back road, a single unknown man waved her down. Remember that during the investigation it became two men and that she knew who at least one of them was. She stopped to see what was wrong and he demanded her car, then started shooting her and her kids. The state says I that I was the one that shot them and that I wanted them dead. If that was the case, I would not have taken to the hospital still crying. There are so many other ways to accomplish such a horrific deed if I was going to do it. I'm certainly bright enough to figure out another way besides some way that looks so absolutely insane and hokey that nobody would believe it. I'm not dumb. Eh, the jury's still out on that one. I mean, you're still trying to use the I'd do a better job of killing my kids defense. When she was asked why her story changed, she claimed it didn't. Then the parole board pointed out that at one time she said it was two men in ski masks. How do I explain this? After my children and I were attacked, the police kept saying, Diane, you must have lapses in your memory because there's holes in this you could drive a semi-truck through. None of this makes sense. Um, you're forgetting something. I believed, because I'd never had any dealings with authorities, and I believed the authorities, and so I thought they did, that I had lapses of memory. I can't tell you how the towel got around my arms, so I know from my own personal experience that I did have at least that much of a lapse of memory. I don't know how the towel got around my arm. So when I, I would have, what people would call me up and people would say, I know so-and-so and he said such-and-such. Such. Um, well, I have a another guy would call and say, I have a neighbor and he has a car that just looks just like that and he's been talking. These kinds of things were being said to me either by phone. People would stop me on my mail route. They would, I worked in Cottage Grove and people would drive all the way to Cottage Grove just to meet me on my mail route and tell me these kinds of things. So I would call the police or I would go to the police and I would say, these, I would say this is what's being told to me. Those are the kinds of things they would say that I changed my story. I wasn't changing my story. I was trying to help. The police kept saying I had lapses of memory. People were calling me and telling me things that I thought, well, maybe this is what happened that I don't know. And so I would tell the police, believing that I was helping them investigate. Except that none of that is true. Her interviews with police were recorded. She flat out claimed that two men were on the back road. She didn't say, people have told me. During her interview with police, the detective said, quote, You've changed it by saying that this guy knew you now. He knew your tattoo. He knows about you. He threatened you. That's a hell of a change from what you said the first time around. There's no reason for you to not say that at the very beginning. End quote. Diane responds, quote, Okay, no reason in your mind. End quote. Diane had started claiming that this was all some conspiracy that was set up by the police and she was afraid to tell this version first. She goes on to say, quote, I have one man sitting here looking at me with a face of stone. I have another man there smoking a cigarette, 90 miles an hour and pacing, end quote. She is describing what she claims to have seen. She is giving a first-person account of this, not what someone else has told her. Nowhere in this interview did she say, oh, this is what other people are telling me. During her probation hearing in 2010, she was flat out lying about that. 
She then goes into a conspiracy about how the police wanted to pin the shooting on Steve Downs, and when she wouldn't agree to testify against him, they framed her for murder. Diane Downs has spent her whole life lying, and at this point, who knows what she even believes is real anymore. She claimed that her children were shot by the infamous bushy-haired stranger, two men in ski masks, drug dealers, and corrupt police officers. She was eligible for parole again in 2020 and had made some waves that year for claiming the COVID-19 outbreak made her worried about her surviving children. There hasn't been any news of her 2020 parole hearing, and it's unclear where she's currently housed. She doesn't appear on the inmate list for either the California Department of Corrections or the Oregon Department of Corrections. If she is granted parole, her release will be delayed while she serves her sentence for the prison escape. After Diane was convicted of the murder and attempted murder of her children, the district attorney, Fred Hugie, and his wife adopted Christy and Danny. The baby that Diane gave birth to during her trial was taken by the state and eventually adopted by Chris and Jackie Babcock, who named her Rebecca. After finding out who her biological mother was, Rebecca began writing her letters only to experience Diane's attempt at manipulating her. She says that she regrets the letters she did write and no longer has contact with her. She called her a monster. I agree. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just €18.72. 
half price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual all that's left to do now is enjoy the football Dunn Stores always better value terms and conditions apply voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more voucher excludes alcohol please drink sensibly